Hello and welcome to a Wonder Care podcast. I'm Sheena Mitchell, pharmacist and mum of three. I combine healthcare and practical advice to support you on your parenting journey. I bring you this episode with the support of Salon Plus Breathe Easy Salt Therapy device. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Neve Lynch. We thought it would be very interesting to discuss the long-term neurological effects of measles, mumps, rubella and chickenpox. We then explore the arguments for vaccination, both with the MMR and the chickenpox vaccine. Today I am joined by Dr. Neve Lynch, who is a consultant paediatrician and paediatric neurologist. And you are a graduate of University College Cork and you won a whole load of medals and prizes <laughs> while studying and then went on to obviously do your training in Temple Street and in Crumlin and in Cork University Hospital. Can you tell me a little bit about what it is like to be a paediatric neurologist? I feel like I don't know what your day to day looks like. That's a good question. That's not something I get asked very often, actually. So day to day, um, the kind of things that I deal with are mostly children with headaches, epilepsy or sort of more chronic neurological conditions, um, sometimes as a long term consequence of an infectious disease. So there's a wide variety of things. So my typical day would be I get up, get breakfast, get the kids to school, get the dog out to daycare if he's going to daycare get into the wards, do a ward round. So I do general paediatrics as well. So there might be a, a number of kids who've been admitted with various infectious diseases in wintertime. Uh, and then the occasional child who has come in because they've had a first seizure at home or they've had an episode of collapse that can't really be explained or they have headaches or they have developmental problems. So that would be a huge thing what I do as well. So either developmental delays or regression in development uh, so those are the kind of things so I do my wardrobe then I go out to my clinic and see outpatients there so that again would be mostly follow-up from the hospital um, seeing children who have migraines and epilepsy and other neurological problems and just making sure that their medications are up to date and that they're on the correct treatment and that their symptoms are controlled. Okay and so your hospital work happens in the Bonds Cure in Cork is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're the actually we're the only acute pediatric inpatient private facility. So you know we're we're the same as any other acute hospital unit. You know we'd be similar to in size um, to the Mercy Hospital in Cork. The only difference is that p- parents and patients who come in have health insurance. About half the population has health insurance anyway. So it's very similar to any other hospital, really. Um, And people are surprised when I say that because they don't realise that there's an acute paediatric service there. But there is. Which is great to know if like you're in the area. And I know I've seen you post about that before. And, you know, as a parent, that's very reassuring. Mm, We get kids from everywhere, really. You know, people have come down from Dublin. People come from all over, really, to, to because, you know, look, the reality is that emergency departments are crowded and if we have a bed you go straight into the bed so you know it's just a a clear pathway for people so they know that they're they're not going to be waiting for particularly long time so people do travel you know be great if there were more units like well look and what would be really great is if pediatrics was you know was well funded and (laughs) well resourced all over the country that would be the best thing um, but uh, as it stands, you know, this is, this is probably as good as it gets in terms of speed and efficiency, you know. OK, I want to talk 
for one second, I just want to emphasize to people that you have an amazing Instagram page where you share a wealth of information and it's really, really a great resource to people. And the fact that you love dogs is another reason why <laughs> I love having on there because I'm a bit dog obsessed. Mm. How did that all start? And do you enjoy that? The dogs or the Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> you can pick. <laughs> the Instagram started. Um, why did the Instagram start? Oh, I was on Twitter and um, during the pandemic. And, you know, there was a lot of information and misinformation on Twitter. Um, and it just felt like, you know, you were kind of swimming against the tide really there. And somebody sent me a message and said, you know what, you should actually start up an Instagram page and share some reliable pediatric information because people weren't able to access their GPs or any of that kind of usual stuff that they would have during the pandemic. So I was like, oh, God, that would never take off. <laughs> you know? And uh, How many followers about do you month, have now? <laughs> I, I, I have about 42,000, but within about a month, I had, I'd say within about six weeks, I had about 10,000 followers. I couldn't believe it. Like, mad. it was mad. And it was it was kind of embarrassing because I'm not like, I'm, I'm a geek, you know, that it's not <laughs> in my nature to be out there and like I remember going into work the day that I hit the 10,000 and all my like the Bonds is a lovely small hospital so everybody knows what's going on for everybody else and uh, all these people were just like really giving me a hard time and teasing me <laughs> um so yeah so look it's it's been a weird weird journey I've pulled back a bit now because I think people have have more ease of contact with their regular healthcare providers now and uh, really it was just about sharing information just to try and counteract all of the really serious misinformation that was out there you know and I love that that's why I started Wonder Baba which is Wonder Care now after my baby mm. was born 10 years ago my eldest and um as you know, a healthcare professional, when you go online, it's very frightening sometimes. The information that you see, you're like, no, in Ireland, we really do need a safe place for people to come to access simple healthcare information. So well done you. And during the pandemic was just a wonderful time to do that when people really mm. needed resources and trusted, I suppose, healthcare information. So today we are here to talk because I've been speaking a lot about chickenpox lately on my podcast and in the media. I'm scratching myself here. <laughs> as soon as you mentioned chickenpox, our yeah. headlines. I met someone yeah. the other day who actually came up to me and it was just after I released the headlines episode and they came up and they just said, mm. I didn't get through. I didn't get through without scratching mm. my head. because You just can't. Yeah. But didn't skin starts to crawl. It does. So I've spoken mm. a lot about chicken pox. So I know people are fully aware of that. And if anyone wants any information about kind of the over-the-counter remedies and treatments and kind of home hacks to treat chicken pox, that episode is there for you. And I also have one which has a conversation on the vaccine. But we might talk about more about that later because I'd love to get your view on that. I suppose I was very careful not to share my personal view on that episode because I feel like I don't have all of the information that exists. I'm not sure it exists, you know, a right and wrong scenario with that particular vaccine. So I just tried to outline the pros and the potential cons as they are now. But we were obviously chatting online and said it would be really interesting to have a little look at measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, that kind of thing. And you are obviously bringing in your expertise of the neurological complications that can happen to children after that. So I might just highlight brief sentences on those conditions just to explain, I suppose, what they are. So starting with measles, obviously highly infectious viral illness that starts with cold-like symptoms that develop about 10 days after you get infected and you then get 
a measles rash a few days later, usually get high fever, little white spots in your mouth, loss of appetite and that kind of thing. The spots with measles rash are obviously small red brown little spots and they appear two to four days after the symptoms and takes about a week to fade. So then we have uh, rubella, which is also a contagious disease caused by a virus and it's spread like we're very familiar with viral spreading now, but close contact through coughing and sneezing. And again, it has a rash and mumps, another contagious viral infection, which used to be really common. But now we have the MMR, which has kind of obviously dampened down all of these viruses. But it's really recognisable because you get swelling on the sides of the face, just under the ears at the parotid glands. And, you know, I suppose it's often described as hamster face. So that's quite Mm -hmm. defining for mumps. So they're the kind of three illnesses that I just, sorry, I just wanted to give that outline because I haven't discussed them on the podcast so far. And obviously they're not something that has been circulating very widely. I know before the pandemic started at work, we would often hear, and it was funny, it would be in like buildings of, you know, office buildings and stuff of people, outbreaks of say mumps happening. And it's interesting and measles, I know there were some cases in hospitals, again, just pre-pandemic. And so the health authorities were obviously warning us to be kind of vigilant. Is measles common now at the moment? No, so the last measles report we have from the HSE is back from 2018. There was a bit of uh, there was a couple of clusters of outbreaks back then. There was five uh, five outbreaks, and then uh, there was about 67 cases, and then a couple of linked cases as well. So that means that it was passed on to people. Basically, most of the people who got measles in that cohort were under the age of one. So they were too young to have been vaccinated and the measles was brought in by somebody who was obviously unvaccinated and traveling. But once it you know, gets into a community, it is highly contagious. It's, it's one of the most contagious viruses there are. And the problem with measles is that about 30 percent of children who get measles will need to be hospitalized, which is huge. Um, so if you get a measles outbreak, then there is going to be a significant burden on the emergency services and, hosp- and children's hospitals. So. It's definitely a nasty one in terms of the short term. Children get very sick. Now, when I worked in Nepal, children who, you know, they would be generally, back then anyway, prone to a bit of malnutrition. Children who were low in vitamin A and get measles can get very unwell indeed. Um, That's not so much the case here in Ireland, but uh, it is a serious illness. The immediate sort of symptoms would be, you know, the rash and the discomfort and the sore throat and the red eyes and things like that. But uh, there can be complications, obviously. You know, the most common one is pneumonia. Measles pneumonia is very severe. And that's usually what leads to hospitalisation. But there are neurological complications as well. So they can get a measles encephalitis, which is an inflammation of the brain caused by the virus actually infecting the brain. Um, they can have symptoms of meningitis. And they can get a thing called ADEM, which is acute demyelination of the brain. So it's a bit like an acute attack of multiple sclerosis for to simplify it. So basically the white matter um, in the brain gets attacked and damaged. Now they can recover from that, but it's obviously a very huge hit for a brain to take and for a child to try and recover from. And then there's a horrible thing called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, which is SSPE, which can develop 15 years later. And it's basically uh, an inflammatory condition of the brain. The brain starts to 
misfire, you have regression. So, you know, um, the person becomes withdrawn, may develop seizures, loses, you know, becomes severely neurologically affected and ultimately will usually go on to die. That's rare, but it is a real complication of measles. So those are the kind of things that worry me as a pediatric neurologist or the neurological uh, implications. But for all children in the short term, they have a one in three chance of ending up in hospital because of this illness. God, like that's actually so, so frightening. Now, I know obviously that's worst case scenario, but I actually... Well, see, yeah, I, I worked in Dublin during the measles outbreak back in the noughties, early, yeah, 1990, I was there, I was in Temple Street and I just saw some really horrible things. Um, children who were very, very badly affected and, and um, at least one or two subsequently passed away. So, you know, it's not it's not to be trifled with. It's a very, very serious illness. Okay. And... I'm that old. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm like I think we're probably around the same age but anyway <laughs> we're really young really 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 young yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> rubella I haven't heard of a case of rubella I haven't yeah checked. German German measles if you remember the phrase German measles I had it myself because I I'm, I am that old that I wasn't there wasn't a vaccine so um yeah it's I and I remember it myself actually it was about five or six when I had it uh, you do get a rash with it uh, you do feel kind of miserable muscle aches and pains again sore eyes sore throat but you know what it's a fairly it's it's fairly mild for children but it has significant implications if a woman who is pregnant gets it particularly in the first or second trimester um it can cause significant uh, issues for the developing fetus and one of the most common uh, effects is congenital deafness so there were you know it, it, back in the 70s and 80s you would it would be reasonably common to uh, meet somebody who had hearing hearing loss or absence of hearing because of of congenital rubella and is that really why we screen for MM or, you know, for immunity during pregnancy? Yeah. Yeah. Now, it, it has other more serious effects as well during pregnancy, um, you know, that, that can result in, you know, miscarriage and things like that. But, it, you know, if, if the pregnancy continues to the end, then the, the more common one is deafness. Yeah. Okay. Mumps. So, as I was saying, I feel like there was definitely outbreaks going on pre-pandemic. Yeah, there were. Yeah, pre-COVID there were. So, basically, uh, there was a spike, I think, in maybe 2019. So, what happened with mumps is that it's really important that children get their booster for, for mumps. So, you know the way when they're in fifth of babies, junior infants or senior infants, they get a booster. And that's that's the MMR booster. And particularly mumps immunity wanes. So if you look at the age profile of people who were getting it, it was people like in their teens, 20s and early 30s. And that was that was a kind of a twofold cohort. One was the group that d- didn't get the booster. Um, and one was the group of people who around the time of the Wakefield scandal, and it was a scandal back in 1998, there was a big fall off in the number of people actually getting vaccinated at all. And those young people were hitting their college years uh, around 2018, 19 and 20. So they were 19, 18, 19, 20 years old. And it was spreading amongst those um, those people because they didn't have any immunity to it. So it's, it's a very painful and unpleasant condition at the best of times, but it can cause an orchiditis, so inflammation and infection of the testicles in males and can lead to long-term in- infertility for men. The other thing, it can cause an encephalitis as well. So it can it can cause neurological complications, um, not as frequently as measles, but it is a recognised complication. 
Okay, and then in terms of chickenpox, I don't know if you're seeing a lot of it in the hospital setting, but certainly in the community, there are a lot of outbreaks of chickenpox this year. I would say more than normal. Obviously, look, it's not a notifiable disease. We don't have figures, but certainly... You know, from my work on Wondercare, there is a lot of chickenpox going. I wonder, is that just obviously there's going to be a reduced amount of immunity because kids haven't been able to spread and share the love as they would have pre-pandemic? It's not something that you're seeing translating into hospital cases anyway? No, um, I'm hearing about it a lot, but... The kids who tend to get hospitalized with chickenpox in the short term are children who have underlying skin problems. Um, so typically your child with eczema might end up with a more severe rash and be a bit more unwell and uncomfortable with the chickenpox. So those are the ones that we like to keep an eye on. They may, might need to be admitted. They might need, if they're getting, showing signs of skin infection, they might need antivirals and antibiotics so in the short term it's it's the kids with with skin issues that end up suffering the worst consequences the other kids that end up quite unwell are if, if they get it around their eyes um, we have to be very careful because it can cause injury to the the cornea and things like that so they need hospitalization as well for care and obviously if their mouth is very sore and they can't eat and drink they might need to come in for IV fluids so it's not nice in the short term right but I hate chickenpox because of the neurological complications that it can cause and I've you know I've, I've seen them and I would never wish it on any child so chickenpox can cause a couple of things one of the milder complications it can cause is cerebellitis so your cerebellum is the part of your brain that controls your balance so children will lose their balance start to fall over have difficulty eating and drinking speaking they can be very unwell with it and you just have to sort of support them through it and treat them and make sure that they're safe and not going to injure themselves Uh, but that resolves okay then there's encephalitis which again you know is a very dangerous unpleasant condition and then the other thing that they get is a vasculitis so inflammation and swelling of the blood vessels that supply the brain so one of the there's two possible outcomes of that they may have a a bleed into the brain or they may suffer a stroke so you know the the neurological complications of chickenpox are really serious and not at all trivial, which is why I think that we should have a chickenpox vaccine, because I've seen the sort of the extreme end of what can happen. But also the fact that when your child has chickenpox, you're basically out of circulation for two weeks, right? And they don't all get it together. So if you have more than one child in the house, you know, the next one develops it about 10 days later. So that's another two weeks. And that's very difficult for people as well to, to have to manage. And it's two weeks of misery. It's not, you know, and then, and then it's so it goes from like, well, maybe a week of discomfort into a week of like extreme boredom, you know, um, and that's the best case scenario. But the worst case scenario is that they end up in hospital with a serious neurological complication. How common like, do you have kind of, I suppose, stats for how common it is? Because, you know, you hear a lot that in the majority mm. of children, it's mild. I'll have to it. check my stats there now, one second. I mean, yeah. I can tell you it happens one yeah. second now. Ultimately, the fact that it's happening is is enough fear for any parent, you know. Children who develop chickenpox may be at a fourfold increased risk of stroke in the following six months. So it it, it increases your risk of stroke fourfold. Um. Now, how many, I don't have your numbers per like so many in 100,000 or anything like that, 
I guess I am the hammer. Everything looks like a nail to me. Do you know what I mean? So when you see these complications, you kind of resolve that you're never going to. Um, and I you're never going to let a child have chicken pox ever again. You know the the best study I can quote for you, right? Is that you know stroke is rare in children, but it does happen, and you know it's as important to know the signs of stroke in children as it is in adults, right? But in a study of seventy consecutive children in America. Um, who'd had a stroke, a third of them had had chicken pox in the preceding year. So there's, there is a correlation between chicken pox and stroke. I just want to take a little break for a second to say that I'm delighted to partner again with one of my all-time favourite products, Salon Plus. This is the world's first 100% natural dry salt therapy device. It's clinically proven to relieve a wide range of allergens and respiratory conditions. Salt therapy method has been trusted for generations and is now hugely popular worldwide as more and more people recognise the superb results achieved from a natural and non-invasive method. This device will help you breathe easier and sleep better. Okay, sold on your views to vaccination. However, right, just for the interest of conversation, because my perspective on this is that it is just not as simple as let's roll out a vaccine programme for all children for a few reasons. First of all, not every child can clinically receive a live vaccine, you know, if they're immunocompromised or whatever reason that they're just not able. So I suppose ultimately those children aren't going to be exposed as children then because if we have everyone else vaccinated, it's not circulating so much in childhood. And as we know, chickenpox becomes a more severe disease as you get older. Are we then potentially putting those children who can't be vaccinated at greater risk of contracting it at an older age? So you're you're into the realms of herd immunity there. Uh, So you need 95% approximately uptake of a vaccine for herd immunity to be bestowed and and if you have herd immunity then that person is a, is buffeted and protected by the herd around them so so there's that argument the i suppose the best evidence we have is to look at what has happened in countries where they've introduced the chickenpox vaccine right so in the USA and in Australia the vaccine has been there for many years now and they're just not seeing that problem emerging the other thing is that you have a specific immunoglobulin, varicella zoster immunoglobulin, that you can administer to people who who you know are high risk uh, if they're exposed to chickenpox. So there is a rescue treatment there so that, you know, you're not sort of saying, oh, tough, you know, <laughs> you have chickenpox. Take your you know? chances, yeah. Um, yeah, there, there is, there, there is uh, measures and protocols that can be taken for people who are vulnerable, high risk and exposed to chickenpox. So you have your sort of safety net there. Okay. I think on a, on a on a population wide basis, the argument for chickenpox vaccine is strong, but obviously I I see where people are coming from. But what bothers me about some of the narrative in this is that you know if we introduce the chickenpox vaccine, adults won't be regularly exposed to the chickenpox virus, and therefore they may be more prone to shingles in later life because we know that exposure to the chickenpox vaccine from the pediatric population boosts the adults' immunity so that they're not prone to developing shingles. I don't think that's really fair when you look at the suffering that's being inflicted on children so that we can stop adults getting shingles. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's just or equal. And there is now also a vaccine for shingles. So, you know, in an equal sort of 
um, dialogue, you should consider the needs of children as equal to the needs of the adult and consider the sort of the potential devastating consequences of a a complication of chickenpox for a child. I totally accept that. Yeah. One thing that has me concerned is that obviously the established, I suppose, length of immunity for the chickenpox vaccine is kind of 15 to 20 years. So say if we go right gun ho, it's on the childhood schedule. Let's go for herd immunity, which obviously is an ideal scenario. My concern would be that in 15 to 20 years time, and this is more a concern with the management and planning of our government, because I think at that point we need to be proactively either giving a booster vaccine because you've got all these say like say you have a six-year-old child little girl who gets vaccinated now 20 years time she's suddenly she's 26 she's in her childbearing years we do know that there are huge risks associated with chickenpox during pregnancy and so I don't think it would be fair to our children now, just talking about equity for children and taking their needs into consideration. I think it would be reckless for us not to consider them as adults and their potential childbearing years. So I think there has to be, if we're rolling it out, a commitment that we're not rolling it out as a one-off childhood vaccine, that there's either immunity checks done, but like you can't do an immunity check every year if someone's 20s on the chance mm. that they may get pregnant. You know what I mean? And a lot of people like the the age of child, like, you know, you can be pregnant from the age of 17 to what, 50, you know. So I think we need to have a second rollout, then a commitment to a delivery of a national live vaccine rollout again, unless obviously immunity can be proven to last longer than the current SPC 15 to 20 years, which it is at the moment. Yeah, the only thing I'd say to that concern is that the the vaccine has been present in the States now for approximately that time span, if not a bit longer. And they're just not seeing that happening, you know, that um, because your reservoir, if you like, of chickenpox is the pediatric population. Once you get immunity within that population, it tends not to trickle up. You know, so I, I don't know is the answer. I suppose I'm just seeing the devastating consequences of chickenpox, vasculitis, stroke, severe infections, things like that, you know. Your, your point there is very valid and I hadn't really thought about it that way. But, you know, if you've got a 26 year old who received their vaccine when they're six, well, all the children around them are, you know, that are 25, 24, 23, all the way down to, you know, one are, are vaccinated. So you're right, you're still going to have herd immunity protecting those people. That strengthens the argument for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, it's not like we just vaccinate one cohort and let them off. It's it's a, it's a rolling thing. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So that's where, look, you know, I mean, these, these discussions are way above <laughs> my level of qualification anyway. And, you know, they're, they're advancing the discussion and the dialogue in the UK. And typically... When something happens in the NHS, it happens pretty quickly in the HSE as well, ah, in my experience. 20 years you know. you're talking. <laughs> I'm like, Yeah, but with regards to vaccines and with regard to, there was something else that came in recently. Oh, I can't, was it one of the heel prick tests or something um, yeah. that had been introduced in the UK and was um, the SCID one, you know, the one about the severe immune deficiency. I think that was a UK move and then it came over to Ireland pretty quickly, you know, so. I'm a, I'm a strong advocate for following your neighbours, you know, because clearly the UK, to be fair to them, do. I've seen that as pharmacists, they have a huge, they have huge resources available to them and the capacity for research and study is greater than it is here in Ireland. 
And, mm. you know, generally, like, you don't need to reinvent the wheel in terms of healthcare systems, which is what I've been talking about in the the practicalities of the ph- pharmacy world in that been talking a lot about a minor ailment scheme and that kind of thing, which works very successfully in the UK. So, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what the UK decide to do then. And I think I didn't have I didn't have a, an opinion. That's what I said. I didn't have a I couldn't form an opinion. And mm. I think my two concerns you've kind of addressed. So look. But then, you know, I'm not an immunologist or an epidemiologist. So, I mean, I can't I'm just that that, that those are my opinions. Like they're not um, they're informed by my own reading and my own experience, I suppose, of the severe effects and impacts of chickenpox. But I know it's it's not a perfect vaccine. It is a live vaccine. It's not perfect, but it's still I, I think it, it still has merits and it still warrants good discussion and and good analysis of the, the pros versus the cons. And I understand your perspective coming from seeing, you know, the worst case scenarios, I suppose, mm. surrounding the conditions. You're absolutely right about the shingles vaccine. And while it's available, it's not currently a reimbursable vaccine. So far, the government haven't taken a proactive attitude to lifelong vaccination programmes. It's just really the childhood programme we have. And shingles, I think... Did they see in the USA by the introduction of chickenpox vaccine, right? They saw the average age of people affected by shingles reduce. So instead of being something that was, you know, kind of happening to 60 year olds, is now happening mm. more in the 40 year old year old age. So who so would have had their immunity boosted by exposure to children with chickenpox, but that's not no longer happening. Yeah. And that's where the shingles is coming younger. Yeah. So I think Obviously, look, they're all caused by the same varicella virus. And I think we, mm. if you're looking at one, you have to kind of look at the other, really. They're they're kind of part and parcel. Yeah. And I forgot Justin Bieber. <laughs> so Justin Bieber had this thing called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, whereby he had complete paralysis of the facial nerve. And that is a late onset complication of chickenpox as well. God, I did not know that. My Bieber information mm. is not obviously <laughs> too high enough standard. See, I'm such I'm such a neurology geek that that kind of thing. Now I found very interesting, but yeah, it is. It's a late. It's a it's a varicella complication. And just before we kind of finish up, you mentioned earlier fears that people had surrounding the MMR. I just I think it's really important to say that there was one study which has been completely defunct that drew a link between conditions, developmental conditions like autism and the MMR. And there has been so much research done into that area and it has been completely disproven. So I really, really just urge patients to feel confident in the MMR. And obviously talking to you today, Neve, there's not really a good alternative. You don't know with immunity to everything is weirdly affected. And I think we'll be seeing that for a few years post pandemic. We saw it with the strange RSV seasons over the last two years and influenza again was a bit erratic this year um peaking early and hard you know mm. i i think we'll have an interesting few years before things settle back down and with obviously people traveling so much there are a lot of countries that do still have high levels of things like rubella and so it's important to maybe review decisions that you may have made about vaccination and try and be pro. I think I think for uh, you know that generation of children who were not vaccinated by parental choice back in the late 90s early noughties they're now coming into adulthood 
they should check. They might know their vaccination status. So that's something for, you know, and some of them are starting their journey of having families and things like that. You know, they may not have gotten their booster, for example. So, you know, the sort of people in their early 20s now should probably try and find out what their vaccination status is, you know, yeah. important to know. It is. And it's no good waiting till you're pregnant because a lot of the times people, you know, aren't planning to have a baby. So it's better to, to I suppose. Well, the majority of pregnancies are, are not planned. So, yeah. you know, it's 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 something to, to, it's good for everybody to know anyway, especially with the mumps as well for male fertility, you know. Yeah. Um, it's not just women, it's it's men as well, you know, that it, it can affect fertility. So it's, it's good for people to know. They did offer, I think in UCC, I think... They offered a, well, they certainly had an outbreak there a couple of years ago, and um, I don't know if 100% sure, but I think vaccination catch-up might have been offered. I'm not sure, though. Okay. okay, thank you so much for all of that information. I did learn a lot about the neuro- neurological effects. I told you I was very clueless coming into this, and it's actually quite frightening, really, because you do tend to think about mild illness. So it's important to hear every side of the story and mm. to kind of... Well, look, I mean, I don't want to be like, you know, a little Miss Scary over in the corner. And these these side these complications are rare, but they are real and they're avoidable. That's the thing. They're completely avoidable. Um, So that's the important thing for people to remember. Thank you so much. I really hope that you have found the information in this podcast episode helpful. If you did, I'd really love if you could give us a little review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That helps me to get more free accessible healthcare information out to parents because the streaming platforms start to show my podcast more. I really, really appreciate everyone listening and joining in and helping and sending in questions so that I know what you want to learn about. And I'll be here soon with another infectious disease for us to tackle. Don't forget to keep an eye on my Instagram page at wondercare underscore IRL. You can pop any questions you have into the question boxes when they open so that I can address your question during a podcast. Thanks for listening.